Chief Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conaparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome back to another episode of SCOTUS 101, and welcome back to you, GC. Thank you, Zach. I'm glad to be back to finish out the term, and it is indeed the end of the term. (laughs) And what a term it has been. (laughs) Now, since it's the end of the term, this also means that we bid farewell to Justice Breyer, whose last day on the court was recorded as June 30th, 2022. And we also welcome Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson to the court. While we have some doubts, we do hope that she continues to echo, and more importantly, apply, the textualist talking points she brought up during her confirmation hearing. Certainly. GC, what's happening on the orders front this week? Well, it was a very busy week on the orders front. We'll highlight a few of them for you. There was a noteworthy denial in the case of Coral Ridge Ministries versus the Southern Poverty Law Center. Now, this case comes from the Southern Poverty Law Center labeling that Christian ministry a hate group because of its traditional beliefs about marriage. Because of that label, Amazon blocked the ministry from receiving charitable donations through its platforms. So the ministry sued the Southern Poverty Law Center for defamation, but it lost because the lower courts held that it couldn't prove that the Southern Poverty Law Center acted with actual malice. That's the standard that comes from that case called New York Times versus Sullivan. Justice Thomas dissented from the denial of certiorari. He has made clear in other cases that he thinks we need to revisit New York Times versus Sullivan. Yeah, that dissent from denial by Justice Thomas is a very interesting read. And if anyone's interested in this area, I certainly commend it to them. There's also another noteworthy denial this week in the case of Dr. A versus Hochul. This involved New York State's vaccine mandate for healthcare workers. The mandate provided a health care exemption, but it did not provide a religious exemption. Justice Thomas, joined by Justices Alito and Gorsuch, dissented from the denial of certiorari, saying that, quote, there remains considerable confusion over whether a mandate like New York's that does not exempt religious conduct can ever be neutral and generally applicable if it exempts secular conduct that similarly frustrates the specific interest that the mandate serves. Now, the court also agreed to hear several additional cases for next term, most notably Moore v. Harper, which involves the much ballyhooed independent state legislature doctrine, which is essentially the idea that the U.S. Constitution gives state legislatures the primary responsibility among state institutions for setting elections rules and procedures. The specific dispute in this case involves efforts to draw North Carolina's congressional map. Now, we also had another blockbuster week for opinions, and I'll start us off. First up is Kennedy versus Bremerton School District. This is the praying coach case. It was a 6-3 decision by Justice Gorsuch, joined by Chief Justice Roberts, and Justices Thomas Alito and Barrett in full, and Justice Kavanaugh in part. The court held that Coach Kennedy could silently pray on the field after football games. Now, you may recall that Coach Kennedy had, for many years, taken a knee and offered a silent personal prayer after football games. Sometimes players would join him, but he never required them to join him or encouraged them to join him. The school eventually fired him for this practice, claiming that it conveyed the impression that the school endorsed a religion. In other words, claiming that it violated the Establishment Clause. 
Unfortunately, the lower courts agreed. The Supreme Court, on the other hand, said that the school's decision to fire Coach Kennedy violated both his right to free exercise and his right to free speech. As to free exercise, the school violated that right because it specifically targeted his religious conduct. As to free speech, the school violated that right because his prayer was private. It wasn't personal to his official duties, and it certainly was not speech on behalf of the school, which would have made it government speech. The court rejected the school's arguments because their implication was to avoid an establishment clause violation, you must violate the coach's right to free exercise. Now, notably, this case marks the end of the dreaded Lemon versus Kurtzman balancing test for establishment clause violations. You may recall this is the test that uh, <laughs> Justice Scalia famously said was like a ghoul <laughs> that keeps reappearing to terrorize uh, little school children around the country. Uh, so the fact that it is gone is a good thing. Now, Justice Sotomayor, joined by Justices Breyer and Kagan, dissented. She characterized Coach Kennedy's silent prayers as leading prayers akin to directing the performance of a formal religious exercise. Having characterized the facts like that, she then said that it was an unconstitutional state establishment of religion. Next up, we had Concepcion versus the United States. On the same day that Justice Sotomayor dissented in Kennedy, she picked up the majority opinion in this case to hold that the First Step Act, a criminal justice reform bill signed by President Trump, allows district courts to consider intervening changes of law or fact when deciding whether to reduce a sentence. Now, she was joined in that opinion by a very interesting lineup of Justices Thomas, Breyer, Kagan, and Gorsuch in one of the frequent but often overlooked non-political combinations. Now, in this case, Mr. Concepcion pleaded guilty to distributing five or more grams of crack cocaine and was sentenced to 19 years in prison. This was during a time when the sentencing laws created a 100 to 1 disparity between crack and powdered cocaine offenses. Key to this case, however, was the fact that his sentence was enhanced because he qualified as a career offender under the Armed Career Criminal Act. After he was sentenced, Congress passed the First Step Act, which narrowed the disparity between crack and powdered cocaine, and allowed lower courts to reduce old crack-related sentences in light of the newly passed law. Also after he was sentenced, the court struck down part of the Armed Career Criminal Act, and in response, the U.S. Sentencing Commission amended the sentencing guidelines. So, the question was, when lower courts consider First Step Act motions to reduce sentences— can they only consider First Step Act considerations, or can they also consider other legal or factual changes? The Supreme Court said that the lower courts may consider all those other changes. Justice Kavanaugh, joined by the Chief and Justices Alito and Barrett, dissented, arguing that the plain text of the First Step Act allowed judges to consider only the changed crack and powder disparity. Yeah, the majority lineup in that case was very interesting. It's not often that you see uh, uh, Justice Sotomayor with Justices Thomas, Breyer, Kagan, and Gorsuch. <laughs> but majority. actually, more often than uh, than media coverage would suggest. Well, it's a, it's a very interesting uh, case and a very interesting lineup. Next is Ruin versus United States. This was a unanimous decision by Justice Breyer that held that doctors cannot be convicted for prescribing controlled substances unless the government proves that the doctor knew he prescribed the medication for an illegitimate purpose. Doctors, of course, can prescribe many controlled substances for legitimate medical purposes, 
but they cannot prescribe those substances for illegitimate purposes. The court held that the doctor has to raise and produce evidence supporting the claim that he acted in good faith. After that, the government has the obligation to rebut the physician's claim of good faith. Justice Alito, joined by Justice Thomas, and for the most part, Justice Barrett, concurred in the judgment but would have analyzed the statute differently. In his view, the good faith provision is an affirmative defense to the crime of distributing a controlled substance, and therefore the doctor has all the responsibility for proving and supporting that claim. We then had Torres versus the Texas Department of Public Safety, which was a five to four decision by Justice Breyer, joined by the chief and Justices Sotomayor, Kagan, and Kavanaugh, where the court held that Congress can authorize private lawsuits against the states under the Uniformed Service Employment and Reemployment Rights Act. Now, to understand this case, we have to bear in mind a background principle called sovereign immunity, which says generally that you cannot sue a state unless it consents to be sued. There are, however, exceptions. One of those exceptions comes from a case last year called Penn East Pipeline. There the court held that if the plan of the convention, that is our original constitutional convention, plainly considered and required the states to cede their sovereignty to the federal government over a particular issue at hand, then there was no sovereign immunity. Now the issue at hand in this case was whether a returning soldier could sue the state for not giving him an employment accommodation. Mr. Torres had served in Iraq, and while there, he developed bronchitis after being exposed to toxic burn pits. After serving, he returned to his job as a Texas state trooper, but the bronchitis made it difficult to do the job, so he asked to be redeployed in a different role. The state, however, refused. He then sued the state under the Uniformed Services Employment and Reemployment Rights Act, but Texas said that it had sovereign immunity. The court disagreed. It said that in the plan of the convention, the states agreed that their sovereignty would yield to the federal government's power to raise and support the armed forces, so Mr. Torres could sue. Justice Kagan concurred to argue that the states actually waive sovereign immunity with respect to any suit that Congress authorizes under the war powers. And Justice Thomas, joined by Justices Alito, Gorsuch, and Barrett, dissented, arguing that the rule from a 1999 case called Alden should control. There, the court held that powers delegated to Congress do not include the power to subject states to private suits for damages in state courts. He also surveyed the history of the plan of the convention and concluded that it supported Alden's holding. Next up is Oklahoma versus Castro Huerta. This was a 5-4 decision by Justice Kavanaugh, and he was joined by the Chief Justice and Justices Thomas, Alito, and Barrett. The court held that the federal government and Oklahoma have concurrent jurisdiction to prosecute crimes committed by non-Indians against Indians in Indian country. Now, the facts of this case are horrendous. Essentially, Castro Huerta, who is in the country illegally, and his wife severely neglected his five-year-old Cherokee Indian stepdaughter who suffers from cerebral palsy and is legally blind. The state of Oklahoma criminally charged Castro Huerta with child neglect and he was convicted and sentenced to 35 years in prison. After the court's decision in McGirt v. Oklahoma, Castro Huerta argued on appeal that the state lacked jurisdiction to prosecute him. The Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals agreed with him and vacated his state conviction. The Supreme Court, though, reversed, stating that the court's precedents established that Indian country is part of a state's territory 
and that unless preempted, states have jurisdiction over crimes committed in Indian country. Justice Gorsuch, joined by Justices Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan, dissented rather spicily, saying that where our predecessors refused to participate in one state's unlawful power grab at the expense of the Cherokee, today's court exceeds to another's. Now, there are two interesting takeaways from this opinion. First, after Justice Barrett joined the majority in Isleta del Sur Pueblo versus Texas to rule against the state earlier this term, there was some speculation that she might rule against the state in this case too and potentially be a fifth vote to preserve the court's controversial McGirt decision. Obviously, she joined the majority here, so it's not clear whether she would be on board with overruling McGirt, though the court had the opportunity to do that in this case and declined to address that question. Now, the second interesting takeaway is that this decision could impact the ability of the federal government and the tribes to circumvent state abortion-related restrictions by setting up abortion clinics or providing abortion services on tribal lands. It will certainly be very interesting to see how this plays out in the coming weeks, months, and years. Indeed. Next up was the big administrative law case of the term West Virginia versus EPA. This was a 6-3 to three decision by the chief where the court applied the major questions doctrine, more on that in just a moment, to hold that the Environmental Protection Agency could not reinterpret the Clean Air Act to expand its power to regulate greenhouse gas emissions from power plants. Now, the facts here are complicated, so I'll do my best to make them clear. We'll start with Section 111 of the Clean Air Act, which gives the EPA the power to set a standard of performance for emissions power plants. The law also defines the standard of performance and requires that it must reflect the best system of emissions reduction adequately demonstrated for the particular category of power plant. Put it simply, the EPA is allowed to set standards that are reasonably feasible to meet given existing technology and costs tailored to each particular type of power plant, coal, natural gas, etc., What President Obama's EPA did, however, was to say that the best system of emissions reduction for coal power plants is just to reduce the amount of power they produce or to make them pay subsidies to renewable power plants. This was a dramatic change in the EPA's power under Section 111, and the court held that it's simply not the power that Congress gave the EPA. The majority said that the EPA actually reinterpreted Section 111 to claim a lot more power than Congress gave it. But the majority went a step further, too, and said that even if the EPA's interpretation of Section 111 could be considered reasonable, the major questions doctrine requires the courts to adopt the narrower interpretation. Now, that doctrine holds that when an agency claims vast power over major economic or political issues, it must show that Congress clearly and unambiguously gave it that power. Otherwise, the courts have to presume that the people left such weighty decisions up to their elected representatives. Here, there was no such clear delegation. Quite the opposite, the text and historical practice shows that Congress did not give the EPA the vast power that it claimed. Justice Gorsuch, joined by Justice Alito, concurred to discuss some of the implications and doctrinal nuances that the majority opinion means for the major questions doctrine. Well worth the read if you're especially interested in that topic. And Justice Kagan, joined by Justices Breyer and Sotomayor, dissented on the grounds that Section 111 should be interpreted as a broad delegation, giving the EPA vast powers to stop the catastrophic harms of climate change. 
Last up, we have Biden versus Texas. This was a five to four decision by Chief Justice Roberts in which he was joined by Justices Breyer, Sotomayor, Kagan, and Kavanaugh. The court held that the Biden administration could end the Migration Protection Protocols, colloquially known as the Remain in Mexico policy, which had been implemented by the Trump administration. The Biden administration suspended the program in June of 2021, and Texas and Missouri sued shortly afterwards, claiming that the suspension violated both the Immigration and Nationality Act, the INA, and the Administrative Procedures Act, the APA. The district court issued an injunction ordering the government to maintain MPP and for DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, to give further consideration to its action. The district court reasoned that Section 1225 of the INA provides the government with two options for illegal alien entrance. One, mandatory detention, or two, return to a contiguous territory, such as Mexico or Canada. Since the government did not have enough facilities to meet its mandatory detention requirement, the court said the government had to return the aliens to Mexico. Additionally, the district court held that the Biden administration's June 1st memorandum discussing this issue was arbitrary and capricious in violation of the APA. The Fifth Circuit affirmed, adding that a subsequent October 29, 2021 memorandum by DHS ending MPP was not a new and separately reviewable final agency action. Now, the court disagreed, pointing out that the statutory return provision uses the word may, which provides DHS with the discretionary authority to return aliens to Mexico. The court also disagreed with the reasoning that because the statute makes detention mandatory, the inability of the government to detain aliens requires DHS to return the aliens to Mexico. The court said the statute does not say anything like that, and if Congress had intended the return policy to operate as a mandatory cure of any non-compliance with the detention requirement, it would have it would not have conveyed that intention through an unspoken inference in conflict with the unambiguous expressed term may. Thus, the court said the return policy remains discretionary even if the government is violating the detention requirement. Justice Kavanaugh filed a concurring opinion stating that when an agency is exercising discretion, that exercise of discretion must be reasonable and reasonably explained. He said whether the requirement is satisfied by the October 29th memorandum is not before the court and should not be considered on remand. Now, Justice Alito filed a dissent, and he was joined by Justices Thomas and Gorsuch, and Justice Alito argued that the INA mandates that illegal alien entrants be detained and only provides two alternatives to detention. One, return the alien to a contiguous country, or two, release the alien on parole. He said the parole aspect can only be granted, though, on a case-by-case basis for urgent humanitarian reasons or a significant public benefit. Justice Alito says it is wrong for the court to create a new option with this decision that the government can simply release these aliens. Justice Alito agreed, though, that the district court's injunction exceeded its authority, but he argued that because of the expedited briefing schedule imposed by the court, the court should not resolve certain questions without adequate briefing or argument and should simply remand the case without reaching the merits for reconsideration, particularly of the APA issue. Justice Barrett also filed a dissent, and she was joined by Justices Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch, 
except for her statement that she agrees with the majority's analysis of the merits, and she argued that the court should not have reached the merits at all. Another provision of the INA sharply limits the ability of federal courts to enjoin or restrain the operation of specified immigration laws, except under certain limited circumstances. What a week it was, Zach. What a term it has been, GC. (laughs) Well, at this point, we would usually have an interview for you, but with the sheer amount of material we have had to cover this week, uh, we have skipped it in the interest of time. But Zach... Don't you worry, I still have trivia for you. Of course you do, GC. (laughs) Don't sound too excited, Zach. I will maintain my usual level of excitement. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I knew that you'd be just devastated if we skipped it. All right, let's let's get it over with here. (laughs) All right, we can do, because the term is over, uh, end-of-term statistics trivia. Sort of wrap-up, you know, what, uh, what are the big statistical takeaways from this term? Oh, interesting. Now, of course, you know, GC, we're lawyers. We're not engineers. Uh, I'm not an engineer by any stretch. Uh, So I will uh, do my best to answer your questions, but I may give uh, (laughs) broad ranges instead of mathematically precise uh, statistical answers. I'll I'll allow that. Oh, that's that's only fair. Well, well, that's very generous of you. (laughs) Well, we will start with the circuit circuit court scorecard. Uh, which U.S. Court of Appeals received the most attention from the Supreme Court, and how much of that attention was negative? I'm going to guess the Ninth Circuit. I feel like the Ninth is always <laughs> a safe guess. You are correct. The Ninth Circuit was, as usual, the court that got the most attention from the Supreme Court. The court took 12 cases from that circuit and reversed it in all but one. Very interesting. So perhaps a harder question, number two, which circuit court came in second place? Now, are we talking total attention uh, from the court, GC, or negative attention from the court? That's so, I want to go with total attention. The reason being that there are sometimes circuits that get, you know, one case and then get reversed. So that's 100% reversal, right? But that's not really much attention. Well, if we're talking total attention, it seems like there have been a lot of cases out of the Fifth Circuit before the court this term, so I'll go with the Fifth Circuit. Well done, Zach. The court took 11 cases from that circuit and reversed nine of them. So, moving on, question number three, we'll talk about the justices' agreeableness. How many or what percentage of this term's merits cases were unanimous? Oh, very interesting. Well, I think the past few terms, uh, you know, it's my sense is it's generally somewhere between like a third to a little under a half, uh, you know, somewhere in the 40 percent that the justices uh, agree with each other and unanimous opinions. So I'll go with that. I'll say somewhere between like a third and 40 percent or so. You are very close. And as a matter of history, uh, recent history, you are right. But in fact, this term, the number was actually slightly lower, 17 cases or 27% of the Mm. docket. That's actually down quite a bit from last term when fully 43% of the cases were unanimous. Well, listen, I think I'm in the neighborhood, at least driving (laughs) through. That's fair. (laughs) All right. How many cases or what percentage broke six to three along the lines of political appointment, Republicans, Democrats? Oh, that's interesting. Okay. I will say somewhere between a quarter and a third of the cases. 
In fact, this time uh, you're slightly high. It was 13 decisions or about 20% of the docket, which is actually up slightly from 10 decisions last term. Mm. But again, not, uh, not many cases split that way. Mm. Interesting. Which justice or justices had the most majority votes? I'm going to guess the chief justice. It seems like the chief found a way more often than not uh, to be in the majority. That is a safe bet. The chief is very good at doing that. Uh, and this year, though, he was actually ju- tied with Kavanaugh. They both voted uh, in the majority 56 times and uh, were in the majority a total of 95% of the time. Mm. That's an increase of 4% for the chief from last year and a decrease of 2% for Kavanaugh. Hmm. Now, which justice had the most dissenting votes? I'm going to go with Justice Sotomayor. Very safe bet. No surprise there. 24 dissenting votes. All right. Final question. You're killing it today, Zach. I'm really impressed. Given that Justice Sotomayor had the most dissents, it's no surprise that she was in the majority the least amount of the time. How frequently was she in the majority? I'm going to guess somewhere between uh, a half and two thirds of the time she was in the majority. That uh, is exactly right. About 60% of the time, her liberal colleagues were in the majority just under 70% of the time, which goes to show that although it's those partisan splits that get the most attention, they actually represent a very small part of what's going on. The Supreme Court remains by far our most agreeable branch of government. Well, very interesting stuff today, GC. And that's all we have for today, and that's all we have for this term. So thank you to everyone for listening to SCOTUS 101. Please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we would appreciate if you left us a five-star rating. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. And we look forward to joining you again after the summer hiatus. Case is submitted. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.